0: Hey, this is Keith Davis with Nest Realty. I am here today with Jim Duncan and Barbara Wilson, who is the Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at the University of Virginia. Barbara, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Sweat the Details. We look forward to a great conversation with you today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I wanna, wanna start first before we kind of get into this, our, our listeners tend to be tend to be realtors, builders, people who are involved in the in the residential trade or commercial real estate trade. And whenever we think of someone in an architecture school, a professor of architecture, we tend to think of someone who draws houses, draws office buildings or apartments. And I want to kind of just get you to kind of set the stage because that's not what you do. Um Explain to us what you do and why what you're doing is important within an architecture school versus how else it could fit within academia or within our our larger studies.
1: Absolutely. So um, urban planning programs are... Um, You are right to be, you know, asking this question. Urban planning programs are based sometimes in schools of architecture, sometimes in in policy schools. And it's partially because the profession is a hybrid thing that kind of came out of the, you know, the challenges that early cities were facing with public infrastructure, with uh, public service provision, with, you know, social services and engineering. And there was a a fair amount of fight at the turn of the century about what our field should be. Should it be a version of social work? Should it be a version of, um, um, you know, of of, of engineering, of science um, or of design? And all of those things were happening. And, uh, for it's, it's, it's oscillated between them. I think for a little while, the, uh, the version that was more about engineering and rationality, um, and really kind of focused on a, a version of, of science uh, that was about really transportation planning and other things that are about flows in the city from a big picture perspective won out. But what's happened is that the field um, needs all of those, right? The answer is it should be all of those things because cities are really complex and complex adaptive systems need um, need creativity, which I really love being in a school of architecture because I have Colleagues that are so very creative in all of the different professions that, um, that we teach. And we actually have a new real estate program that is a, a bit of a hybrid between several of the different programs, but, but based in, in urban planning. And then we're urban and environmental planning because we really want to be explicit about the need for nature and uh, non-human actors to be you know brought to the table for decision making. Um, in, in terms of how we think about our, our communities.
2: So when you, when you talk about the, the non-human component, what, what do you, what do you mean by that?
1: So if I am designing a city and I, or, or a neighborhood or a town or anything, and I am not thinking about the local bird population or the bat population, um, I am going to have, a huge amount of effects that will then affect that entire ecosystem. Right. right. Um, so bats do a lot of really good things for us. They, you know, they keep the mosquito population down. They they have a, a thousand other, you know, really wonderful um, uh, contributions that they make to our, to our local um, existence. And if we start designing cities without uh, all of the different flora and fauna in mind, then we're going to end up with, well, we have ended up with a lack of biodiversity, a lack of the ability to grow all of the different types of, of things we need, a lack of, of the bees that you know help us pollinate all those things, right? And and then also like we end up with problems like stormwater management and other issues that are that are all related to the non-human and giving it space to to thrive as well.
2: So I mean, I'll say a big a big question on on that is you know in the last. X number of years as climate change has shifted and has become more and more of a thing that we all know is happening today and tomorrow, or the next day, how has that design process shifted and changed? And and the second part of that is, how would you like to see it change?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so I think we have done a better job of, as, as the title of my program describes, like, bring, you know, we're we're better at bringing in the environmental and, and making it clear how The environment is useful to humans, Um, but what we are not doing yet is thinking through um, the, the full component of both the environment and its needs and then also all of the different types of humans that live together and their needs. And so what I think we're starting to do is now think through climate justice and other types of relationships between the social and the ecological, which of course affect one another. Um, and are linked. And we're, we're starting to think of them in that linked way, which just allows us to be a lot more nuanced in our decision making. So
0: so one thing I do want to ask though is, you know, if you look at the last 20 or so years of, of kind of change of focus, right now you're really, you, the emphasis that I heard just now is kind of the way in which our actions are changing the environment itself or that are interacting with the environment. Whereas if we look back to the cradle-to-cradle principles, Bill McDonough, who was a f- former dean of UVA A School, um, you know, his were, were as much, how do we interact with that environment? How do we bring that environment in? And, and certainly other urban planners, the whole traditional neighborhood development piece really started looking more at how do we create towns, centers that, that, work within nature, but maybe not the emphasis you're putting on how are we impacting that nature and what are we changing? Is that, is that a fair statement?
1: Um, it is a fair statement, although what I am excited about that I think actually Bill McDonough's work holds up really well. Um, he was before his time in many senses sure. is um, is uh, and still, still is in, in many ways, but I think we're starting to catch up with him where his concepts are about waste can equal food. Mm-hmm. And so we should think about closed systems and not only closed systems at the, at the you know, scale of a factory where we figure out how to use our trash to make fuel. Uh,
0: a Rouge but, River component of, yeah.
1: Exactly. Um, But then also as a city, right? What would it look like if we stopped thinking about trash as something that we put on a boat to another place far away that then they somehow dig a hole and let rest there but you know which is like not a really good strategy turns out um and instead if we start thinking in a way that you know we are responsible for figuring out a creative strategy that allows our waste to become fuel to become food and so in in many senses it's just about a more linked and um uh an environment that is not just about the birds or just about the people but actually how they interact which is is really in the creative problem-solving moment. And as climate change continues to have, you know, greater and greater extreme weather events that we're all suffering through, I think people are becoming more open to that creative potential like oh i might live a little differently but actually that could be pretty cool like i know now i have shoes that are made out of water bottles and they're radically comfortable and you know there was that there wasn't a lot of that on the marketplace just a few years ago but now people are starting have, to get excited
0: you shoes, do you have shoes made out of water bottles
1: i really do and they're amazing <laughs>
0: no, that's totally cool
1: yeah they're washable it's it's incredible i could go on
0: so we, so the the climate change question i mean certainly within your work climate change equity of of the community, uh, that's becoming a greater, you know, it's, it's, it's a topic in every political conversation. It's a topic, but how does within the urban planning area, how does equity fit with that climate change question? How is it, is it playing out in communities and redevelopment efforts?
1: So it is the major passion of, of my work is really trying to think through, we know that the environmental challenges that have hurt us hurt lower income communities of color the most, mostly because they've always been uh, the ones with the least amount of say. Right. And so if you don't have a say, you are next to that trash, right. you know, landfill um, environment. You are next to the plant that gives off that air quality. And so your health is impacted um, in a way that the EPA would say is, you know, is disproportionately impacting low-income people of color. So, okay. in the '70s, we decided that was illegal and we weren't going to do it anymore. Um, well, and so, I'm sorry,
0: but we kept doing it.
1: But we kept doing it exactly. Yeah. And um, and so I think now we have a culture that's a lot more interested in, all right, how does that creative problem solving that can make waste into my shoes. Um, become something that also says no one in our community should be subjected to being the thing next to a toxic plant. Um, you know, how can we really think differently about our systems so that climate issues and racial injustice, which we know overlap, racial and economic injustice, we know overlap and have disproportionate impacts on one another, um, how can we think about them as something to solve together?
0: How much of that is going to have to do with zoning questions in terms of allowing the plant to be near residential? And how much of that is going to be related to zoning questions that promote socioeconomic diversity within specific areas and communities? Is it a question of where we're allowing people to live or where we're allowing the bad stuff to exist?
1: yes um so i mean i think i think in many senses for me the most exciting questions are about how do we get to an infrastructure an energy infrastructure just to take that example that doesn't require us to have a toxic plant um there are versions where you know Every house has uh, some way that it produces its own energy, and and we're interconnected. We can think at the at the district about energy production, right? There are ways that we can do this really positively, um, that that are about community level problem solving. We've, if we think about it at the stage of just the parcel, I don't think we're ever going to get there because that's actually not systems change. That's just like individual preference you know, driving the way. Um, And all of those preferences are limited by by the systems that they operate within. So if we didn't have so many power plants, and instead we had a distributed system of, you know, energy, no one would have to live near the, the toxic thing.
2: There's a, there's a book I, I, I'm working my way through right now. I, uh, I've, I've seen stories about how during the pandemic, everybody reaches, overreaches. So I'm reading like six books right now, maybe eight books in pieces. Uh, and one of those books is one uh, upstream uh, by, the, by the Heath brothers. And it t- it's talking about finding these problems, you know, not putting, out, not putting out the fire, but putting out the reason we have the fires. And so has that, you know, looking upstream of what the, these problems are, has that dynamic shifted in the last few few years of looking to the start and the source of the problem before it becomes a problem?
1: Absolutely. I think the conversation, um, so there are there are places that it has been happening for a while. Like I would, I I really love a um, a graphic that's coming up in my mind right now is from King County, um, Washington, where they actually have streams that are about health equity, and it shows the upstream effects too that limit health equity or increase it, um, which are sometimes about zoning, Keith. There there sometimes they are about where choice is limited. Um, or not, but often they're about um, historical, like structural racism, and these these things that have happened over many generations mm-hmm. and limit people's choice exponentially. Right? We've seen the racial wealth gap um, right. go, uh, you know, exponentially larger since the 1960s when we implemented all these civil rights laws, and part of that is, you know, because of the ways in which we enact policies, and also, you know, uh, there there are these other. Bigger um, structural racism—you know—ways uh, in which, like we we operate within these systems, and our own, you know, our own individual consequences are matched with the compounding factors of of these of these big systemic issues. Um, so, I would say that the upstream is um, is critical because. It, even when we look at the disproportionate impacts of COVID on families of color, that is absolutely because our healthcare system and all of the land use that also design, you know, so much of of what your health is, you know, constituted to be is about your zip code. Right. Um, all of that is is things you know that are making our country and and our our neighborhoods um, more susceptible to the virus. Like my friend, um, Dr. Kamlin Cameron Webb, who I work with at the Equity Center, talks about how racism is like killing us. You know, it is making us sick. Um, and so, if you think about problem solving at a community wide level, you have to think upstream, and you have to think about these bigger systemic problems, or or we're not going to solve them.
2: So, you mentioned there you you see there as being at least at least three three types types of equity: um, ecological engineering and inclusivity. Can you expand on on what I just said, <laughs> and, yeah. and for the listeners?
1: Yeah. So actually, um, uh, it's it's the language of resilience that I have used many times now um, in uh, in in my own uh, research because so resilience comes from a couple different mindsets and and planners like to talk about resilience very much. It's a it's a very popular term right now, and uh, resilience comes from things like um, uh, an ecological model first, which was about absorbing shock, right? So if I'm a really great um, functional uh, marshland, I absorb the shock of, a, a you know, extreme climate event, right? Um, right. Of a flood. Um, if I am um, a an engineering-related resilient material, then I can bounce back really well after, you know, I'm hit by something. Um So uh, those are both great when you're talking about um, objects or non-human actors, but completely inappropriate, especially when you're grappling with these multi-generational issues of structural racism that our our country and many others are grappling with the effects of, um, to ask that people that have been limited in their ability to choose healthy places to live and, and thrive, to ask them to bounce back or absorb shock, right? That's just, that's an inappropriate question. And so resilience, when you're thinking about it in terms of an equity lens, you think about it in terms of the um, adaptive capacity to make choices uh, for your own life. So a stressor's coming your way. It may be an extreme climate event. It may be, um, you know, a rapid uh, economic, you know, um, Displacement, but uh, but you have the ability to to choose how you react to that stressor, and that's what resilience looks like in a sort of you know a climate justice framework.
2: So, as part of that resilience, you know, again through the you know, I've mentioned it before. that I'm reading a lot now about mat, the coming mass migration, not just in the United States but around the world, as climate shifts uh, more rapidly than we thought it would. Um, at yeah. what point is resilience constituted as? or is, is retreat constituted as resilience? Because at some point, being resilient, no matter which one of those three you, you look at, you're not going to be able to be resilient in the face of floods, fires, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I. A lot of my work is teaching students how to help communities process trauma because we know that it is really a stressful thing to grapple with... Um, with extreme climate events. And we know that they are happening on a more regular basis and two more communities across the globe. And uh, they're pretty, they're pretty traumatic. There's some, there's some big collective trauma and a lot of communities. um, I write about one in Biloxi that I know very well. So it's, it's um, it's, it's in Mississippi, but uh, they, East Biloxi was hit by many storms. Um, really, you know, a storm every couple of years. They they've been hit by uh, uh, you know oil spills, and um, and at first after Katrina, where they were hit very very hard, they built back just twelve feet in the air because that that land was the only place. The, their only choice was to rebuild where they were based on the you know available policies and and you know uh, uh, recovery strategies available to them. And so, and so they built up. But uh, but thinking about how to process trauma through design, the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio actually worked to not only think about assets like their marshland, and they did this bayou bayou project where they actually worked with you know school children and um, moms wanting to be trained in um, ecological restoration, and they did this you know really asset based uh, economic development-focused effort that allowed them to think differently about what might happen in Biloxi so that they could think about, you know, what do they value as a region to process the trauma of all that they'd been hit with, to, to talk about the ways in which their bayous, if they weren't covered in, um, you know, in asphalt, but in fact were, uh, you know, were seen as a place of productivity and as a place of, um, of value, you know, something to value then, uh, then they can also reimagine um, the local economy to not only be about fishing and those other things that they are very proud to be you know still doing well, but also to be about ecological restoration. so um so in many senses, it's it will there will be the need for um for change and for migration and um and for people to you know to think differently about how they live in their space. But you have to be able to process the trauma of your experience in order to make those decisions collectively.
0: So, Barbara, let me ask you: with with the Biloxi question, um, you you mentioned that they raised all the houses and all the buildings up twelve feet to allow for for future damage, not to damage the the true infrastructure. For a tangible point, were there other things that physically happened in terms of the, the redesign and reimagination of Biloxi and how that came together that you can point to that? Kind of just how you're building that resilience through the design process.
1: Yeah, so Biloxi is a really uh, great example. It's a small enough community that they were trying to identify, you know, in in stages of the recovery process what they needed. And first, they needed to rebuild whenever possible. And that, that meant cleaning out debris. And, you know, there was a lot of really interesting strategies to get towards um, possible rebuilding of homes. But then, as I said, the, the floodplain changed and um, not all houses had to be uh, rebuilt higher, but, but many did. And, um, and so they, they started also thinking through um, where they might build in the future and how they might build differently. So they uh, they rejected the Katrina cottage, which was a design that had been brought in. I think they're adorable, but, um, but the people of Biloxi did not. And they actually created a policy that said, no, thank you. And that was partially because it felt impermanent and like not a long-term solution. And they were really um, hungry for, something that felt permanent, felt of Biloxi, and felt long-term. So some of their great work has been in the restoration of bayous. They've now restored 12 bayous, and, and, you know, Biloxi's not a huge place. And um, through a place that also does really great job training and and job production. Um, So I think that's pretty cool. But they also... Um, have really been thinking differently about their beaches. They have honored the role that the Biloxi beaches played in the civil rights movement and the desegregation of, of beaches and really tried to re- you know think about these things as linked again and then um, think about the future as a place where they are racially just and racially integrated but also climate just and um, and, and kind of that that closed loop approach.
0: That's, that's fantastic i appreciate it and if i can you know we're we're running short on time but i do want to cover one piece just to kind of try and bring this all back around to to charlottesville and your your particular work and that is we're in the process right now of having a larger community discussion in the charlottesville area about the area that that was garrett square friendship court um stretching in through the x building area um and a redevelopment question, gentrification question. I wanna kind of focus on some of the language that we're using regarding that. But kind of walk us through what we as a community should be looking at when we have these inner city opportunities to redevelop and rethink. And obviously the and I, I do wanna address specifically the question, the word of of gentrification, if you can, on on how this all fits together.
2: Yeah, I'm going to jump in here real quick, Barbara. Um, for those who aren't from Charlottesville, uh, F- Friendship Court is it's a nearly 12 acres of uh, about 150 apartment complexes and 22 buildings. That is, you say, four blocks off the downtown mall in Charlottesville. If that, yeah. if that, it is situated between Charlottesville's downtown mall, which is uh, an economic hub and cultural hub of the city of Charlottesville, and X Art Park and which is uh, another private, another it's hub
0: a, but it's a privately owned piece of that i mean and 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 frankly the friendship court is also privately owned this is is not yes. there is a section of section 8 housing that does exist just south of friendship court but it's a very small portion of the of the space we're talking about but it right. is it is very low income housing in general
1: right so it is owned by Piedmont Housing Alliance is the majority owner, and it is all right now Place Basic, Sinead Housing, 150 families live there. I will say I'm on the board of Piedmont Housing Alliance, so completely biased uh, towards this project, <laughs> but it has sure. also won um, statewide awards. And so I think, you know, my bias is, is now well-founded by the state of Virginia. Right. Um, what's been special there, and, and honestly, I would I would say it absolutely is the same thing that's been so special in Biloxi and and other places, is that all of the decision making has done uh, has been done by a resident majority board. So the it is resident driven redevelopment. Um, so that, as I said, there's 150 families that live there now. Um, the decision about what those 12 acres become. Has a lot of possibility in it, and and so there was an election. Residents were voted in. There is also a city council member, one of the minority owners, like a you know a whole a, a former resident who's still a really important community leader. Murder Halchins is also on there. So there's a there's a range of um, of thought leadership in that governing board, but it's a majority residence, and it's it's been very important to everyone involved that that stay that way. And they deliberate about, you know, okay, so we want a zero displacement um, commitment. And um, as and, we, and when
0: you say zero displacement, in terms of the families who currently reside yes. in friendship court.
1: Yeah. And part of that is because um, my field and many others have been um, uh, harming families in, in Charlottesville and across the country through urban renewal um, for generations. And so this... This community was created as a place to put people when they were involuntarily displaced from Vinegar Hill. So there are there's trauma to process there. Is that um, Barbara?
0: Is that when this started? Was when the Vinegar Hill Star Hill redevelopment process went through? That's when Friendship Court was mm-hmm. born? Yep. Is it at the same time that West Haven, which is another one of our section housing? Sure. Okay. All right. Yep. Great.
1: Yep. Um, so yes, all of the public housing in our neighborhoods and also um, Friendship Court are all created around the same time in the in the late sixties, early seventies, and all very much to um, to kind of be the band aid for the the violence that was displacing the people in in Vinegar Hill, and um, and so to not recreate that violence was really important to everyone involved, including the resident leaders. And so there luckily there's some green space on um, the Friendship Court site. And so the first phase of redevelopment is going to happen in the green space. The majority resident board decided four phases felt like um, enough. Uh, you, they, you know, they didn't want their kids to grow up in a construction site for their entire young lives, sure. but they did want to make sure that things were done in a way that no person was displaced for any period of time. So they're building um, on what is currently a a green space and a, and a community garden. Um, So figuring out how to, how to build the community garden back in is definitely a priority, but um, but that is underway. The tax credits have been approved, and um, and so that that redevelopment will be subsidized by by tax credits. And, and phase one should start before the end of the year, the, the construction. Um, and then by the fourth phase, the final phase, everyone will have been moved in to um, to a new uh, a new housing unit. And so there's actually a fair amount of possibility about wealth generation um, that that's again, going to all be resident led. So it's, it's really exciting. Every phase is, is made, um, with, uh, with all of the decision-making power being in this, in this governing body. Um, and so that's part of the ways in which trauma is processed. Um, and, and so that we can, we can look forward together. One of the decisions uh, in terms of, uh, gentrification, which can be economic displacement, but it also can be cultural displacement. And a lot of residents were really worried about um, one of the early plans for friendship court did involve a lot of um, small, extremely, um, extremely high income units. And they were like, that's going to be cultural gentrification. My kids will be the only kids playing in right. this state. And so I'm going to be treated like, you know, the uh, my kids are, are maybe going to be over-policed, right? These these were very real concerns sure. based in a lot of people's lived ex- experience. And so the um, the governing body came together, thought it through, and decided that actually they did, they were really committed to a mixed income model in terms of the, the new housing. Um, and so, of course, the 150 families uh, with, of place-based Section 8 will stay, but it goes from... From you know extremely low income all the way to eighty percent of median income, and so that's still affordable. Um, but that's more of your doctor, you know, or your your nurse, your you know teacher. Those those roles that. Um,
0: the workforce housing. Um, the Sorry. workforce
1: housing. Um, so that uh, we, we called it a ladder of opportunity so that you could build wealth and stay in place. Um, and because uh, that's important, too, right? If you get a new job and you've been living in a, a place based Section 8 subsidized housing unit, um, you often have to leave. And we we mapped out where those options are. And, you know, non-subsidized housing, it's, it's far away. You know, you, you have to get a car. Your kid is at a different school, right? It, that's, that's a lot. Um, and so we, we want families to be able to make good choices with all of their options available to them. And the way that the resident-driven process is going, I feel like you can stay in place. You can build your wealth. And, um, and you can, you know, keep your kid at Clark Elementary if, if, um, if that's where they are.
0: That's awesome. And I, and I will great. say, just listening to the process, it's not its not even so much the excitement that I'm, I'm feeling or hearing even about with what that end architectural result is. It's the excitement about the fact that the families who have been there and are there are involved in what the next stage is. It's that for a change, we're talking about redevelopment of, frankly, some of the most valuable land that the city has – is being retained for the people who live there. It is the processes is, is taking their issues and allowing them to be involved and saying you are part of our present and our future. And it's just, it's an amazing kind of outline for for what you guys have done at PHA and for for what, you know, what the city is, is helping you all do with the residents and what the residents are, are committing to. It's great.
1: Thank you. I, I will say... Um, you know, residents make really good decisions. So there's a um, there's a early childhood education center that's going to be on site, and that is probably going to be a ridiculously beautiful design, uh, aesthetically speaking. Residents want it to be a, a building that models all of the values that they see as, as beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think there'll be great architecture on um, on in all aspects of the decision making. But yes, the the way in which these decisions, as being made, is as important and as beautiful.
0: There, um, I, will, I will say, there's a um, there's a group in Charlottesville that's phenomenal called the Center for Nonprofit Excellence, um, and I know. Barbara and and Jim are both aware of it, but for listeners, it's just, it is a resource for nonprofit groups across the community, not just, you know, not just housing pieces, but nonprofits in general. And a few years ago, every year they do a a thing called the Nonprofit or the Philanthropy Day and they bring in a speaker and they had a a gentleman whose name slips my mind. I wish I had thought of it to Google quickly enough, but he is out of Pittsburgh and he runs inner city programs. I don't know, Barbara, if you saw this when he was in town. I don't
1: know if I saw that one.
0: But he grew up in Pittsburgh, and, and his his outlet was that he um, joined a pottery class in high school in Pittsburgh as as an inner city youth, and he found that pottery became his um his outlet, and art became his outlet of beauty, and so he has created these inner city um, boys and girls clubs, if you will, not not the legal, not the group Boys and Girls Club, but his same model, except that he brought in phenomenal world-renowned architects to design the spaces. Because he said, if you're going to bring kids in off the streets and put them into what looks like a jail cell to play basketball, they will not feel that they've been brought into anything positive. That you really had to design the space to become something that they wanted to be a part of and that itself showed the importance that the community had in the people who were inside. And I think, you know, this is, this is where the design, it, it's so cool to watch what you guys are doing. And it's a similar kind of mindset of the people who live there know that they want to be part of something that's special and something beautiful. And and they're taking pride in doing it and they're going to take pride in it once it's completed. So
1: yeah, it's, work. it's actually really exciting. It's uh, this, the process happening at Friendship Court is, Ap- operating in a parallel process to the redevelopment of public housing at South First Street, um, just down the road, and then also out at Southwood in Albemarle County, yep. Yep. Um, and so three different communities doing it slightly different ways, but in each case, their residents are driving every decision-making point, and the creative problem solving is awesome. They're 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 finding ways to honor, you know, their own ecological wisdom in addition to just really making good choices for themselves. It's, it's, it's an honor to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, that's That's great. Hey, Barbara, um, We are kind of running longer than normal, but this has been a a phenomenal conversation. We haven't wanted to cut short, but I do kind of need to ask our our one kind of closing piece here, which is that, you know, this is sweat the details. And so for all of our guests, we kind of ask what that one detail is that you sweat on a daily basis, or do you think the the people you work with should be sweating more? Um, And I'd love to kind of hear your thought of, of how that fits into equity and design and and your work.
1: Yeah, I am all about transformation of decision making, and so for me, showing the math as decision makers on how you learned from the people that you consulted along the way, or the you know the people that were really uh, part of that process, and um, and how you convey that. Right, I heard you. Here's here's what I heard. Here's what this means. Here's how I'm making more equitable, more just, more climate-aware decisions because of it. Um, that is the detail that I is really hard. It takes a fair amount of effort, but it's essential because maintaining trust and um, you know uh, relationships uh, where power and resources are are properly shared. Um, also requires you maintaining really good communication. So for me, that's that's a key thing, is that detail of I heard you and here's how it changed the decision-making process.
2: And there you go. Uh, that was a fantastic answer. It's uh, one of my favorite parts of the podcast is hearing what those details are that each of our guests sweat. And um, I think that showing your work is something that I try to do in all of my client interaction because it, it, without having that proof of work, if you will, you don't get the, the credibility and the confidence and the buy-in. Uh, so uh, that was a fantastic conversation and answer. Uh, so Barbara, thank you so much. We, uh, we really, truly appreciate your making the time. Um, and uh, yeah, we could easily go for another couple hours, uh, <laughs> but thank you so very much. Barbara. Yeah, thank you.
1: I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: Awesome.